quick before we get started, I just want to let you guys know that One Story is now a podcast. Um, Dad, please. Order person sitting there, but I. Um, so one story is not a podcast, which is exciting, but that means that if you, yeah, thanks, Addy. Um, but if you ask a question um, and you don't want to be recorded, Rue's going to come around with a mic at the end if you guys have questions for President McNulty. Um, so just let him know, I mean, let Rue know if you don't want to be recorded, um, and you can totally turn the mic off and then no one will ask questions. Okay. Okay, so thank you all so much for coming. Um, This. Okay, and certainly, thank you to President McNulty for um, taking time out of your, I can imagine, very busy schedule to be here with us. Was it? It's cool. Okay. <laughs> Just added to the business at the end. Um, so, the first question I ask everybody that's done this, um, did, did I tell you about the first question when I saw The song thing? The song thing. I, I need a song that I can add um, to my playlist. Okay. Yeah. I rely on three songs. Yeah. All right. Totally. Well, here's my question. What do you think that Shamalana Ding Dong by Otis Day and the Nights, um, My Girl by The Temptations, okay. and Two Ralura Lura by the Irish Tenors? <laughs> those what do you think those three songs have in common? I mean, I can imagine probably a lot of things. Oh, not a lot. I think there's like one thing in my life, but good. I won't put you on the spot there, but. What do those three songs have in common? Well, those were the three songs for the first dance with my three daughters when they got wedded. Oh. <laughs> so Katie, my oldest, got married and the first the dance was Shamalama Ding Dong. <laughs> you probably don't know that one. But if you've ever seen The Animal House, it's Otis Day and, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, the lead character it's Otis, he loves us. That's my camera house. And then, I've always loved The Temptations. Okay. In fact, when I was 18 years old, for a birthday present, my only birthday present when I was 18, was that my mother gave me two tickets to see The Temptations oh. at the Holiday House in Pittsburgh. Oh. And it was like sitting in a nightclub, yeah. at a table, yeah. right in front of the stage. Yeah. I wasted on some girl who never went out to me again. <laughs> <laughs> it was like amazing. <laughs> Temptations were right in front of me. And so I my girl was always one of my I used to dance around the house with my daughters with to these songs. Aww. And so Shamalama Ding Dong was Katie's song, Aww. my girl was Annie's song. And then Corey, my youngest, she lives in Ireland. So right, her right. wedding, she married an Irish guy. Uh, and when all my little ones and my grandchildren now, whenever they're I'm holding them, I'm always singing to them. It's the Irish love. Right. So, your songs for your playlist. Yeah. Well, thanks. <laughs> Three great additions. Um, so, can you tell us a little about your background, where you're from, family interests, sure. etc. Yeah. So I grew up in Pittsburgh, in kind of a more of a blue collar, closer to the city um, neighborhood, in the um, uh, just outside of uh, in the South Hills, just in, outside of Liberty Tunnel there, and um, I. Um, I grew up in a really idyllic kind of 1960s, early 70s, safe, fun time. You know, um, when I was a boy of 12 years old, um, 
or so, um, my mother let me catch the bus and go down to Three River Stadium and watch baseball games, just be my friend, you know, yeah. run yeah. around the city, and no one ever thought we were in yeah. danger or anything like that. It was really very nice. So I grew up just basically loving sports. I, uh, baseball was my favorite sport. This was even before, if you're a Pittsburgher, this was before the Steelers were good. <laughs> so uh, it got good when I was like in high school. Okay. So, um, so I'm more of a Roberto Clemente guy, you know, the, yeah. the Pirates of the 60s and the early 70s. And, so. and uh, yeah, so I was uh, played a lot of baseball, and um, I um, loved um, history from a really early age. I'm one of these folks who knew what I wanted to study when I was in basically kindergarten. Wow. Uh, when, when they, they used to have those book lists that they, you could order little books from, and then they would come to your school class in a little box, and the teacher would hand them out. And I always used to check off George Washington biography, Abraham wow. Lincoln biography. You're yeah. so different. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think everybody's probably different. Yeah. <laughs> and that's why, in fact, when I came here to be a history major and I uh, want to be a lawyer, I just thought, well, if you are, you know, um, if you're in history, if you like Abraham Lincoln, you got to be a lawyer. So that's kind of a yeah. spot I put into it. But um, yeah, so then um, fishing was fun for me and, and the outdoors. Then I got really into running, long distance running, uh, and um, high school, cross country track and field became my kind of obsession. Yeah. Um, and, and that'll lead to okay. how I got to Grove City. Yeah, so that, that was my question. How did you get to Grove City? And what was your experience here? Because I imagine just on sort of context information that you shared on Monday, it might be a little bit different. Yeah. Yeah, what we have now. Well, I should also mention, um, growing up, uh, my family was, again, my parents were very caring folks. We, I was um, in a very devout Catholic family, and we were, um, we did everything. And I was just always kind of pretty much with the agenda. You know, I didn't really rebel from it. I just yeah. said, whatever we're supposed to do, I'm, I'm there. Right? Mm -hmm. um, well, I was a runner, and um, the cross-country coach here at Grove City in the 70s, um, recruited me. And I actually still have the letters in my office oh, wow. down in Crawford. Uh, three letters came to the house in a period of like six weeks. Yeah. And they were from this man named John Barr. And he was inviting me to come visit the college. Oh, wow. And um, in my neighborhood, my high school, it wasn't a given that you went to college. I had a really big high school class, like 900 in my senior class. And less than half went to college. Wow. Because in those days, jobs at the steel mills paid really well and that's where people went but my parents wanted me to go to college and I just didn't have much of a plan and these letters came and I said to my dad do you want to go up and visit this place and so we came up here in 1976 uh, and uh, we liked what we saw and that was it for me yeah so a cross-country coach kind of helped me you know make sure I got through yeah. and uh, and the funny thing was, I ended up never really running cross country. I, I got here and I was in, in it for a bit. I was kind of burned out because I'd been running so much yeah. since I was like eighth grade. Yeah. And I got involved in some other things here and I just sort of lost my drive for all the work you had to do. So those days kind of ended for me. Mm -hmm. But that's how I came to University okay. College. It wasn't for cross country, I wouldn't have come. Interesting. Yeah. I didn't know you were a runner. Yeah. You still run? I don't really. <laughs> <laughs> I can see why you might not think that. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I've never, I've never stopped in the sense that I've always 
Now I run every other day and I run three miles and that's all I do. But I've never stopped since I was a kid. I've yeah. never had a period of time where I wasn't doing some running. So, yeah. yeah, that's impressive. Well, I don't know about that, but <laughs> I'm thankful that the Lord let my knees and everything still work. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so then I ended up in law school. Um, and when we spoke on Monday, you mentioned that there was a fateful trip to DC that um, ultimately ended up jumpstarting your career. Yeah, well, can I say more about growth seasons? Maybe some folks oh. might want to hear about that. You can say, yeah, absolutely. Okay, no, I just wanted to mention that Grove City was um, uh, an up and down experience for me. I mean, it wasn't like all good. Yeah. And um, I had a tendency to get very overextended in my life, uh, join a lot of things, very much kind of an engaged type person, um, for good and for bad reasons. And um, in fact, one of the reasons why I got out of cross country was I, I, I ran for freshman class president. And um, that's that's uh, and I, yeah, it was a, it was a funny story to read that because you all know Dr. Thrasher from, uh, mm -hmm. um, he had been in career services now, he's in admissions, he's chaplain of the football team and oh, teaches yeah. a yeah. couple courses. Well, he was a, uh, ended up being a fraternity brother of mine, but he was in the freshman class with me and he was the vice president of oh. the freshman class. And we ran for sophomore class president and sophomore class vice president, like a ticket in a sense. Wow. We were kind of, re kind of running for re-election. Yeah. And we lost. Interesting. Again, yeah. ironic. And it was, it was Jim Thrasher who dragged and took it down. We would have won if it wasn't for him. Because, I don't know, just the students rejected him and I got <laughs> um, That's my story. Uh, I'm sticking with it. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, I think I struggled at times. Um, one of my favorite memories, I, I played Gollum uh, in the children's theater, The Hobbit. Which was, <laughs> I mean, Bless us and splash us, my precious. <laughs> I won't put more there, but it was a very meaningful uh, character. Uh, I, I was in charge of social affairs for student government, and we had big, epic concerts on campus, oh. things that you wouldn't see today. Yeah. But in those days, we had, um, like, ever hear of prayer, Pure Prayer League? Prayer, prayer. Pure prayer league, kind of a country rock band thing. They came to campus, was a, we filled the arena, it was a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. But I also, you know, again, was distracted, and um, sometimes I felt like I didn't know who I was. I was I was a follower of Christ. I was chapel A, but at times I was living really inconsistently with that. And it wasn't until my junior year, late my junior year, I met Brenda, and we immediately hit it off in senior year. We were, you know, together and we were new when we get married. And a lot of things that same time started coming together for me and knowing more about who I was, settling down, and having a better sense of, of, of where I wanted to go. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. it took time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyway, now I'm in law school. Yeah, so then, then law school yeah. came and you went on the trip to the Well, when I was in law school, I wanted to uh, be involved in public policy. It took a while to figure out what kind of law I might want to do. And I, um, I became more and more interested in how does a Christian get involved in uh, politics and public life and still hold true to your faith and bring it into what you're doing. Is there sort of a Christian view of, of politics? And so I, um, I said to Brenda, you know, if we're gonna do this, we might as well do it in Washington. Um, you know, let's do it in a 
the most challenging environment. And she was very supportive and said, well, all right, who do you know in Washington? I said, nobody. And uh, so, um, but I did know one person who uh, had visited uh, in Ohio when I was, uh, I worked for the Ohio Ethics Commission as a sort of a legal aid intern type, and there was a national conference for all state ethics commissions, and one of the big speakers at the conference was the staff director of the House of Representatives Ethics Committee. And my job was just to go pick him up at the airport and bring him to speak and then drop him off again. Well, I, on the way back to the airport, I kind of gave him a little tour around Columbus and said, hey, um, if I ever want to come to Washington, can I look you up? Yeah. He said, yeah, sure, sure. And he gets out and gets him. Yeah. <laughs> I probably hoping he never had seen me again. <laughs> and in April of my third year of law school, so I only have a month left, I get in our little unair-conditioned white Nova, and I drive down to Washington, D.C., and I had prepared about 25 letters, these were the days when you didn't have computers and you had the hand type of letters, um, that were gonna go to different members of Congress and senators and committees that I thought might be an interesting place to work. Extraordinarily naive way to find a job. And after I gave them to the secretary at the front, I'm sure they just went, <laughs> My last person uh, to visit was this man, John Swanner, who was the staff director of the House Ethics Committee. And I went to the receptionist and I said, I'm here to see Mr. Swanner. She said, do you have an appointment? No. Is he, no, you, oh sure. Uh, it met me once. And uh, he let me see him. It's a Friday afternoon. And his office was literally in the Capitol. We're looking out at the mall. That was, you know, in, if you look at the front of the Capitol, the large, windows there, the, the Palladian windows, three of them are the House Ethics, Ethics Committee windows. I go in to see John Swanner, and uh, I'm transfixed by the whole location and the view and everything. And I sit down in the chair in front of him, and he said, oh, you know, hello, nice to see you again. Um, and I said, I'm looking to get a job as a lawyer on Capitol Hill. And he said, uh, well, why should I hire you? And I gave him a little five minute, what we might call an elevator pitch around here. Actually, yeah. <laughs> and when I was finished, he said, I'm gonna hire you. Wow. He said, go back to uh, finish law school, show up on August 1st, and you'll be counsel for the House Ethics Committee. Wow. That was it. <laughs> I called him about a week later, and he said, did, you, did that really happen? Did you, did you offer me that job? Because I'm kind of thinking, I made that off my head. It just didn't it work together out so well. And they said, yes, yes, you got the job. See you on August 1st. And that's wow. how I started in Washington this, wow. for the next year and a half or so. I was counsel for the House Ethics Committee. So, yeah, my job search is a little unusual. Yeah. And it was great it was. Yeah. Maybe you should do a class on elevator pitches. Yeah, maybe so. <laughs> I don't remember exactly what I said. <laughs> I had to talk about it. Um, so I tried to do my homework on you um, before this. Not in like a creepy way, just like a, <laughs> like a general information way. And you had quite the career in Washington, um, and a highlight of that being the fact that you ended up serving as Deputy Attorney General. Um, and so with that in mind, I wonder if we could talk about um, identity for a second, because I know for me, I put way too much of my identity in school and career-related things. Um, so how did you take who you are as a person um, and separate that from the high-profile, high-powered, Well, you know, ambition is real, and I certainly had um, ambitions. Um, I wasn't consumed by, by, by ambition. I was more 
driven by this vision I had for um, faith and public policy. And I would say that my core um, operating system of work and living is about people and purpose, and treating people well and living life perfectly, okay? And so ambition can work against that, and I was pretty committed to that idea about treating people well, for example. And if you're always looking for opportunity, you can become opportunistic, which is much more self-oriented. And my father was a wonderful role model for me. He was a simple man, a simple salesman. And I traveled with him around as he sold auto parts in places like West Virginia and small towns. And we would go into little auto parts stores. And I would just watch him talk to the people behind the counter who were the owners of these little auto parts stores in towns that no one knows about. He would talk about their family and their kids. And he would not even try to sell something as much as he would just try to relate to them. And I remember thinking, on one hand, Dad, we drove, we drove all, we drove two hours to get here. You're not even gonna sell anything. Yeah. But at yeah. the same time, I thought, but you're being a really great person. Yeah. And so I just learned that people really matter and care about people, like personally think about who they are and what they're all about. And, and it was just because I was blessed by the yeah. grace of seeing that. And then this purposefulness was a part of my whole Grove City Christian worldview. This is what I want to kind of go out into the world and do. So that helped work against purpose. I mean, uh, excuse me, uh, uh, ambition. Yeah. And ambition consuming me. And I became more focused on what was I doing at that moment? What job did I have? And how was I executing that? Was I treating people well? And was I kind of staying focused on the work? And here's the secret. In Washington and every place else, that tends to bring about success. People like that kind of person. They want that kind of person. So. I was getting along, for example, I was on the Republican side on the Capitol Hill and in Bush administrations, both of them, Bush 41, Bush 43. But I had a lot of Democrat friends because we were finding ways to kind of connect as people. So I kept getting opportunities. And the other thing that was really important to me was I am, I love my family. And I was have I had four kids, and I didn't really want to hang around in Washington at night. 30 years of receptions and you know lobbyists putting out food on Capitol Hill and all the staff people are sticking around. I wanted to go home. And it wasn't even that hard a choice for me because my heart was really at home. And so, you know, in God's kindness, he, he gave me good role models, my father, he gave me love for my family and, um, and a real desire to be more about the, um, the impact that I might have rather than just advancement. And that doesn't guarantee you're gonna get opportunities, but things did then continue to come along. Yeah. And then, you know, when you look at provinces where all of you as students are gonna run into this, you can't predict just the circumstances that will unfold. And, um, um, and so for example, when I was asked to lead the transition from the Clinton Justice Department to the Bush Justice Department. I didn't even know in the, the wind, in, in December and January of 2000, um, 2001 that I was gonna be nominated to be the U.S. Attorney in Eastern Virginia, or that 9-11 would occur, yeah. and I'd be the lead prosecutor for the terrorist cases that came to Eastern Virginia, which obviously helped, become, helped me become Deputy Attorney General later, right? So those were just all 
these um, amazing providences that unfolded. And for me, it was about being faithful in the task that I was doing at the time. Um, so I wonder if we could circle back uh, to your family for a second. Yes. Um, and talk about them for a bit. Um, you mentioned that you have four children, um, but your son, Joe, mm -hmm. um, could you tell us a bit about him? Sure. So Joe's the second um, of the four children, and he was born in 1986, and he died in, in uh, 2012. And he was 26 years old when he passed away. He, he came down with cancer when he was 24, and it was a two-year battle that finally took his life. And um, he was my best buddy. Um, I love my daughters, and we were just really close. But when you have this one son, it tends to create this special bond. We did a lot of things together. We played a lot of golf together. We um, went on a lot, of, a lot of sporting events together. We just, we were very similar, and we were very close. Um, so. It was the defining experience, I suppose, among, among all the experiences of my life. It was this one that's probably had the biggest impact on who I am today. When we spoke, you told me about your decision to come back to academia. Yeah. Um, and ultimately to become the president yep. of the school. Um, and you told me that Joe, and specifically Joe's death, um, had a very direct and profound effect on your decision to become uh, the school's president. Yeah. Um, so if you don't mind sharing, what, what effect did Joe's death um, have on that decision? Sure. I should also say about Joe, um, he was an amazing athlete, um, was good at everything he sort of took up in sports, and it was really fun to see that. Uh, he was very warm-hearted, um, uh, had a, a, a big infectious smile, um, and, uh, uh, and so there's a lot of, you know, a lot of people like being around him because of just the, the sort of the, the humanity that he had. And uh, he was also had a great faith, which is going to become a much bigger part of the story when he, as he approached death. Well, um, so, and, and by the way, as he suffered and went through um, his treatments, he was unfailingly kind to the doctors and nurses that cared for him. There's an amazing story of one of his surgeries that he was going into, his second big surgery. Um, he was on the gurney, they take him in the operating room, and he says, stop, stop, before they get in the operating room. And he says, I just want to say to all of you, as he's looking up from the gurney, thank you for all of your kindness and yeah. care for me. And people were just amazed by this, yeah. the sense of peace that he had. Yeah. Well, to your question, so that happened in December of, um, December 5th, uh, 2012. He was uh, in law school, he was in his first year of law school. And uh, he was trying to persevere through his classes and uh, and his body was just giving up on it. Cancer had spread from his body. So uh, he literally took a log exam in his hospital bed five days before he passed away because he wanted to finish his semester. Um, so Grove State College started searching for a new president a year later. It was December of 2013 when I first got contacted by the college's headhunter and asked, do you want to be a consider 
for the job of president, your name has been suggested. And uh, I was working at a law firm at that point, and I had built my law practice up since I left Department of Justice. It takes a long time to build any practice, and I was doing these corporate investigations and traveling a lot. And, you know, it was rewarding, it was tiring, but I mean, it was not something you walk away from easily because it took long to get there. And and uh, um, and and we'd been 30 years in Washington, and with with Joe's death, our friends had rallied around us, and so there was just a lot of deep rootedness. And this was a, one sense a really hard question. But the one thing that came to me very clearly in December and January and February, those decisional months, um, a year after his death, a college would make its decision by that spring of, of um, now, would be the spring of 2014, so I'm approached in December 2013, and so now it's 2014, um, was that my affection for uh, younger adults, people Joe's age, had really developed into something really significant. Because now I understood how precious life was at that point. And up until then, I'm not sure if I had that appreciation. I, I love my own kids, but I wasn't sure if I could say it like all people who were 20. <laughs> um, but I, but I, uh, I really thought how much more um, my heart had kind of gone towards um, people at that stage of life. And it really made me feel fit um, to come to this work, because I felt like if you're gonna do this, it had to be about um, a vision for what a Christian college should be all about, and it had to be about loving students. And, and so, um, I think in the death of my son, the Lord is getting me ready for this calling. And, uh, and now I'm in my eighth year, I really see that I had not even appreciated as much of how much um, affection Brent and I both have for the students. It really is an overwhelming feeling to, uh, to live in this environment. That's amazing. Um, I, when, when we were talking about Joe, I asked um, if you felt angry after he died, and you said no, um, which surprised me. Um, and then I think you maybe saw that I was confused by that answer. And so you shared with me the idea um, of a foundation. Right. Um, and that, that foundation is what prevented the anger from coming um, after your son passed away. So what is a foundation, um, and how did it save you um, from yeah. anger? Yeah. Well, I mentioned earlier that I've been raised in a family where we were you know, a devout Catholic family. There was not really any time in my life I can remember where I doubted um, that God existed. And as that grew in high school and came to Grove City, I, you know, um, became much more um, knowledgeable and committed to the whole broad set of beliefs that not only did God exist and create, but that He um, saved and that He loved me and that He had a plan for this world, and and um, and I and I embraced those things, and felt passionate about those things. Now, it's one thing to have beliefs. It's another thing to hold fast to them when the times are yeah. most difficult, yeah. right? And, and I was, what, in you know, my 50s or so, and that was not the time 
to abandon what I had committed myself to all my life. Mm -hmm. By the time I got to that point, and it wasn't the first hard thing that I'd ever done or gone through, but it was the hardest thing. Yeah. Um, I was all in. Yeah. I was all in on that being real and true, and therefore, there was no place for anger. I was too busy being sad, frankly, to have time emotions for anger. But, you know, if there was no place for anger, I, I trusted. I trusted that, that God had a plan. Um, and Joe inspired me with, with his faith. We had this meeting um, one month, no, two months before he passed away, well, less than two months, so October 17th. 2012. Cancer had come back. He had gone to Chicago, the University of Chicago, for a lot of his treatment. So we had this experience of flying from D.C. to Chicago for radiation and chemo, and then going back to D.C. and back to Chicago and back to D.C. That went on for many months. And then he, we thought in the summer of 2012, he was in remission. That's why he started law school. But then in September, in that first month or so of law school, the um, cancer came back, took over his lungs, and his days were sort of numbered at that point. And, and when the cancer came back and it was pretty clear, he needed to get back to Chicago and talk to the oncologist and figure out what the deal was. He sent me an email. I was in DC, I was in, in Virginia, and I was gonna fly from Washington to Chicago. He was gonna fly from Columbia, South Carolina, where it was in law school, and we were gonna meet at O'Hare, rent a car, go down to the hospital, and he sends me an email that evening, and it says, hey, Dad, um, tomorrow, I, I want to make sure that you and I are on the same page. Tomorrow's going to be probably a really hard day. He knew the oncologist was going to say, there's nothing more I can do for you. He said, tomorrow's going to be a kind of a hard day, but it's an opportunity for us to show courage and faith to the doctor and the nurses. So I just want to make sure that you are on the page with me about how we're going to react to wow. what we learned. This is my son telling me this, wow, right? How can you not <laughs> yeah. be inspired, right? Five days before he passed away, he sends Corey, who's a student here at the time, she's a junior at Grove City College, her brother is passed away. By this point, we brought him to Northern Virginia, and he's, he's um, um, although this was actually in, in, in Columbia, the next day we, took, we brought him back to Northern Virginia. He sends her an email from bed, and he sends her this, the Getty song, Speak O Lord. And he says, spread this around campus. He said, spread this around GCC. By the way, he's a James Madison grad, so he didn't even oh. care about GCC. <laughs> but he says, spread this around GCC. That's why Keith Getty uh, and I are such close friends today, because we got introduced after Joe passed away, because I told Keith a story about that song, wow. and, yeah. and that started our friendship. But, um, but anyway, so that was an inspiration over and over again that um, made such an impact and, um, and, and helped me really put this thing in the right perspective and have the right hope. I told a story at his funeral about, we went to Scotland after he graduated from college and we played golf in five golf courses on the eastern side of Scotland, including St. Andrews. And uh, I've been a big golf fan, and I always watched the British Open, and when it was at St. Andrews, you know, I just dream of going to St. Andrews and playing golf. And so I said at the funeral, it's a little bit like that. 
it's one thing to watch TV and to see Spoken Bridge and, and uh, the ancient Royal Golf Club by the golf course. It's another thing to actually go there. Yeah. And when we went there, I knew it was real. Yeah. It wasn't just talk, it was real. And that's the way this um, experience played out for us, that the faith was real. And Joe was um, really okay. And you might, you know, for when you love your kids, you can love for them to be college graduates. You can love them to get good jobs. You can love for them to have successful families or happy families. You can love all kinds of things. But at the end of the day, what I want the most is for my kids to be in heaven. <laughs> and so I have one home and three more to go, and <laughs> three grandchildren and three sons-in-laws. You know, that's my deepest hope. And 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 so I'm, I have that wonderful peace, even though I miss them terribly every day. Yeah. Um, I, you, you mentioned that you feel total peace yeah. around Joe's death when we spoke the other day. Yeah. Um, when you shared that, I was really surprised, yeah. just because it, it's just an unexpected thing to hear, because you know, obviously losing your son is yeah. It, yeah. one of the worst things that can happen to you. Yeah. Um, how, how did you find that piece so quickly? That's it. I mean, just having it be, um, I believe that you're supposed to talk to yourself. Not in a kind of weird sort of, that person needs psychological help, but in a sort of a, um, a Psalm 42 way, which is um, you wrestle with difficult things. You struggle. You ask hard questions. But then you can that with the right answer. You don't let your envy just hopelessness. Yeah. So the psalmist in that song is wrestling and then says, um, uh, why are you so cast down, O oh my soul? Hope in God. And then there's wrestling. And then he says, why are you so cast down? So why um, are you, is your heart so in turmoil? Hope in God. And so there's this rhythm of struggle, pain, difficulty. And then it's finishing the sentence, finishing the thought out with the right conclusion. And that's what you do to kind of hold on to peace. So many people don't have the, the conclusion, and therefore they just mourn without hope. But I, I mourn with hope. You know, Paul says, death, where is thy sting? And because oppressors remove the sting of death. And that's the hope that I've always held to. As I said, Ariana, early on, you know, you can believe these things, but it's just a lot of, of um, you know, posturing until the moments come where those matter. And if, and if they don't, if it's not real, that's a pretty big problem. So anyway, that's, that's why, um, and Brendan, by the way, you know, what a blessing, because she's been the exact same way. A lot of times that can be the real difficulty in marriage. One person's managing one way, another person's managing another way, being strained. Our relationship got stronger through this, because we saw the same way and we supported each other. And um, yeah, so that's, um, that's how it's made us better, better equipped, and um, 
And I'm now in a place where I have less fear about the future because um, I miss Joe so much that I don't really care how it plays out. Yeah. You know, yeah. if I go to 90, great. If I go tomorrow, okay. Yeah. So that's the way it works, you know. Yeah. yeah. It changes your perspective. Yeah. Um, we also talked about regrets. Yeah. Um, and how there's always a thought of, you know, could I have done more? Did I do the right yeah. things? Or maybe I should have done that. Um, and we all have regrets. But I imagine um, when they're centered around the death of a child, um, they're more potent. Yeah. Um, and so how do you, how do you move through those um, and, and grapple with those thoughts when they come up? That goes back to that last word, because I'll tell you, that one's been hard on me. I do have, I second guess myself. Was I a good enough dad? Was I a good enough dad when he was really sick? And how did he get treated? And could he have gone to a different hospital? And could he have had an earlier intervention? And he was 24, so he was a grown man. And so there's only so much I could do. But um, this is one thing where Brenda is um, sad for me because she thinks I beat myself up on that from time to time. And I, I have to confess I do just because thoughts will run through my mind did I do the best I could? And um, um, once again, I can't let those thoughts just end that way. I have to end those thoughts by saying, well, of course I did the best I can. I'm a sinner. <laughs> I'm, I'm a weak guy. I'm, I'm a failure, but for grace. And so I'm going to have made mistakes. And I have to accept that as a reality. And also I have to accept the fact that God's plans are perfect, and I don't need to beat myself up over how they unfolded. But yeah, that's um, that's a reality of something like this. You, you do wonder how you might have been able to uh, do a better job. And you see people recover, you know, and you think, oh. yeah. You know, and, and, and in our, in our, um, In our economic reality, our affluence, we like to think that, well, I'm just going to go to Johns Hopkins and get the best doctor there is, which is kind of sad to think about because most of the world never right. has that kind of never, choice. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so, but we in America right. think we're going to get it all right. Right. Yeah. And so you have that around you. Yeah. And you think, oh, should I? Well, meanwhile, I got into this Chicago thing that I should really quite significant too. Right, right. But I think that I missed. That I should have looked at top ten cancer treatment centers in the country and gone to one of the other ones, you know, and so forth. That's how it happens. It kind of triggers when you see these stories and people talk and so forth. But, um, but again, I, I am, I, I don't want to overstate it in the sense that there are there is that piece at the end of it all, and there is that way of speaking to myself and, and providing the right um, resolution. Do you ever see your son in interactions with students? Yeah. Yeah. Um, not in an eerie, um, depressing yeah. way. Yeah. Right? Not in not in like the way that it debilitates me, but in a way that sort of touches me. Yeah. I'll be talking to a young man about something regarding the future. I had a lot of talks with my son, as you can imagine, about people. He was in law school, right? So about, oh, you want to be a federal prosecutor? My son, by the way, I was, 
you know, prosecuting terrorists, and uh, I was deputy general. He might have been paying a little attention to that. Then I, I prosecuted Ralph Sampson, and I was on ESPN. And then he said, Dad, you're kind of cool. I saw you Now you probably know him. Ralph Sampson's a basketball player. Yes. Anyway, um, but uh, so I'll have these conversations that will just remind me of conversations that I had with him about the same time. And it'll just strike me that that's, um, uh, that's what I miss, right? And, and, and uh, but it, it motivates me to want to have those kind of conversations, you know? And, um, and, and I feel blessed to be able to be around college age people going through the questions of life that my own kids went through and, and uh, to be able to have the privilege of, of having any word to say that might be of some usefulness to them. And, and so that's when I think about him and do that. But it's a nice, it's a nice feeling. You know, yeah. it's kind of a certain, um, there's, a, there's a, a, a reminiscing in a tender way that I don't, I don't it doesn't haunt me. It's sad, there's good sad and there's bad sad, you know? Good sad is just thinking about someone warmly yeah. and, and, and having a touch point in that way. Mostly it's good sad that I have. Yeah. Yeah. Just a um, um, flash of something that brings back a warm memory. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and I like that, yeah. One thing, I, by the way, I, I want to tell you all, most people think when they hear about it, when they're talking to someone who suffered a, a, a death in the family, that they don't want to bring it up. And I didn't know until I went through it that it's okay to bring it Because we actually like talking about it in a weird way, because we, it's always on our minds. It's not that we like talking about it, it's that we don't, it doesn't bother us, because it's always on your mind when you go through something like this. So it's okay, you know? And um, I, I had no idea. I used to always think, oh, well, um, <laughs> said, um, I got to change the subjects. I just opened up that can of worms, yeah. right? And now I made you feel real bad, and yeah. I didn't know it. I didn't know. I stepped right into it, right? Yeah. And, uh, and I always want to tell people now, no, 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 relax. It's okay. <laughs> I, I, you, you didn't remind me of it. I'm always yeah. Yeah. aware of it. So, yeah, just yeah. a little piece of advice on that subject. Thanks. Yeah. Um, this is my last question, I've been trying to be more reflective recently um, because my days here are very numbered um, and I can't seem to figure out where they went. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, you've been the president of the school for seven years? Is yes, your eighth year? Okay. Um, do you feel like students here are, are missing out or, or failing to recognize any significant facets of um, a college experience or is there is, is there some part of the college experience that you wish we as a student body acknowledged more? Yes. I think my number one, or at least one of my top passions uh, that I have in this world is wanting students to get as much benefit from this experience as possible because I just know how impactful it can be. I also know how time changes so quickly. As, let's just take learning, for example. There are things that you have an opportunity to learn now that you won't have a time to learn later. 
the time won't be there, people won't be there, it just won't be the right moment. Now some people are very good about just kind of discipline, reading at night and all that, but that's I'm not, not that real. person. Yeah, <laughs> that's not too realistic for, for most folks. There is this window of time. And then there are people who come and speak that you want that you should go hear. Um, occasionally I'll run into someone and say, oh, did you hear so and so? And they'll say, no, no, I didn't know that was happening. I'll think, oh my goodness, there's posters plastered everywhere about that. How'd you miss that, right? But and so, and I, I look, I'm not saying that I um, got right either. It's that I saw what I didn't get right, and I just want students to try to make the most of the opportunity. Uh, learning is your job. And I've, many people have heard me give this little talk, but Grove City students are great workers. You know, they go in their summer jobs, and every boss loves them because they're real conscientious and they're kind of humble and they just kind of work. <laughs> and I think, you know, do the same thing with your studies. Yeah. Just make it a job. Yeah. Just go to work in the morning. But your job's not giving people Chick-fil-A bags. It's, it's learning biology. Mm -hmm. Just learn it. Like, just read the books and learn, because this is it. It's a quick four years. And then, obviously, a lot of people go on to continue education. But the point is, it really is a unique time. And there is, and then the freshmen heard me lecture on this, so they probably, they freshmen, I apologize. Uh, uh, there, what, there, there are three D's, like the Dementors in Harry Potter, they're out to get you when it comes to benefiting from this place. One is um, disinterest, okay. the other is distraction, okay. and the third is disagreement. So we think we're disinterested in something. Do you want to go hear that? No, I'm not sure. Well, how the heck do you know you're interested in it or not? Mm -hmm. Like You may be interested in that five years from now, mm -hmm. You don't know what you need to know in five years. So don't sell your short in terms of self-sort on what your interests are. Your interests are going to change. And you're going to think, oh, I wish I had dot, 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 because my interest now is there. And then there's distraction. That one has, yeah. That one gets us all. That's an issue. That's right. That gets us all. And there's good distractions or better distractions than worse distractions. 24 hours a day spike ball is not a good distraction. <laughs> so there's some distractions where you want to make sure you're not being, you know, your, your priorities are kind of clear. So that's that's a problem you have to deal with. And then disagreement. Um, how many times do we not listen? Do we not want to benefit from something because we think, I don't want to hear that because I don't want to agree with that? your views are going to change too, but also you miss the whole point of being here if you have that. This is not about just telling you exactly what you already believe is right. This is about understanding what you believe and challenging it so that if you're going to stick with them, you know why and you're stronger with it. But you're also open to the possibility that you might not have the right ideas about things. And again, it's a unique time to go through that. So if you can avoid the three D's of disinterest, distraction, and disagreement, you can benefit even more from everything that's going on. You know, just make the most of it. It won't be perfect. We always, you know, um, fail these things, but it's just, um, it's a fantastic calling, and uh, everybody should pour themselves into it as much as possible. Do you give that 3D speech every year? No, okay. this was the first year we to the freshman. Okay, because I don't remember that happening to me. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I think, um, I'll have to test them. 
Okay. In a year or two, it's like, hey, name the three Ds. What are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> I said, anyway. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I move my talks around a lot, so I'll, I may stick with that. Okay. Okay. That's all the questions I had um, for President McNulty. If any of you have any questions, um, just let me know. If you don't, that's great too. Oh, there's one back there. President McCarthy, you're a, a pretty big class reunion for you is coming up, uh, this coming homecoming. And so on a light and happy note, I was wondering, uh, what is your favorite memory as a student here? That's a good question. sort of stands out the most. I think I have more, my best memory would be conversations later at night where friendship was sort of being formed in a way that doesn't typically happen in life. And I had this friend who sadly we've not kept up and that's a complicated subject, but he was um, my closest friend while I was here. And we were fairly different types of guys in one sense, but we, we liked thinking about things in sort of um, more deliberate ways. And so we, we lived in a house off campus that was thing back in those days, you live off campus as a senior, sorry. Um, <laughs> we lived in a house on campus our senior year. I think we're like the colonial apartments, just only more independence. Um, <laughs> we, um, we lived in a suite together our sophomore year, and we lived um, across the hall from each other freshman year. So we had a lot of time together. And I would say that I struggled with friendship. And Washington didn't. Washington is not a great place to make friends, and, and so I, you know, I, I, I was just really working hard too, and I didn't have much uh, time for that. That was a sweet time in my life to be able to have those kinds of friends, mm -hmm. and, and that friend in particular was was really special. And so, yeah, I think of all my memories of my time here, sitting around talking balls late night. And then Brenda came along. That was bad too. <laughs> then that was another very special memory for me. Uh, yeah. Question. Well, thank you so much for talking, um, sure. being so pleasant. Um, my question, I haven't really formed it yet, but here we go. <laughs> You're talking a lot about um, being an opportunist rather than someone with, um, you know, constant ambition to achieve. Um, my question would be, do you have any advice on how to gauge what are beneficial opportunities for you? Um, right now I'm a senior, and so I'm kind of thinking about how to grasp the time, how to redeem the time. Yeah. Um, so how, 
how would you gauge um, or give advice to someone yeah. to gauge what is worth your time? That that's a little bit yeah. vague, but no, I get you. I get you, and I, I I appreciate that. You know, I think you should look at just the future generally and where you are with sort of like three strands forming a road. The one would be um, what really, knowing what really interests you. What, what are you just drawn to? Again and again, you find yourself thinking that that's just what you want to know more about, what you want to do. That's an important thing to know about yourself. I, I knew, and maybe I was just blessed because not everybody gets this, as I said, I knew as a little boy, I loved history. It was the classes that I most enjoyed in school. I knew what I didn't like with everything else. And I, <laughs> and I just, you know, just gravitated towards history. And, um, and I pretty much knew as I came to college that I, I wanted to study law. And again, I kind of a naive sort of sense of what that might be about. But, but the interest level was high there. It was just high. And so that helped. Secondly, you need to know what your, your abilities are that you know you sort of see yourself strongest. Is it how you communicate, or is it how you write, or is it how you think, how you feel? I mean, what is it about you that you would sort of say, this is clearly kind of my core strengths. I'm not so good at these other things, but here I think I do pretty well at them. Um, and then the third piece of it is um, providence. What opportunities actually kind of exist in your path? What, what things can you identify as being realistic um, uh, to pursue? Now, dreams are good, so don't, I'm not meaning to dismiss or play it kind of down in terms of what you, uh, those opportunities are. But, you know, there is um, a combination of the, what's before you as, as a real possibility and then the providence of what can come later and being patient about that. Everybody has a chapter one in life, but it's not the rest of the story. And so being patient with chapter one. And, and, um, and then if you, you know, bringing those three things together, um, you can be encouraged that uh, there is a kind of a thing you can be doing that will work out. And then of course there's practical issues depending upon what that, um, that interest is and where you see that potential opportunity, now you have to start getting a little tactical. You know, what alum can I talk to and what can I do for me in career mm -hmm. services to give me some contacts and blah, blah, blah. But before you ever get to that, try to understand what you like, what you're good at, and what's um, in the world of possibilities for you. Does that get to what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Thank you. Hi. Um, I'm curious, since your time as a student here and um, just campus culture then and looking at it now, um, what kinds of things have you seen that have changed? And I know that's a lot, but maybe like one, one big thing or something really good that you experienced your, in your time here um, that you would hope to see more of or hope to see change for just campus life or um, yeah, how campus yeah. looks today. Hmm. Where do I go with that? <laughs> There's so much difference. That's the first thing you should know. 
between the 70s and now. <laughs> um, we were a lot less successful as students than we were. We had some in our midst, but for most of us, we were not as focused. We didn't put the pressure on ourselves that you guys put on yourself. General, I'm not speaking generally. There was pressure, but we just didn't. We were a little bit more laid back about, a little bit easier going. Our parents raised us a little differently than your parents raised you when it came to all the possibilities and all the expectations. I was a child of, of, of a father who fought in World War II. Now that's, for you guys, grandfather, right? That was my father. He fought in the Battle of Bulge in World War II. He survived that. He was shot in a machine gun in both legs. It took him a few years to recover. He walked with one shoe that was built up so he didn't limp too much. My dad was just happy to be alive. <laughs> he was happy he survived the war, you know? They lived through the Depression, blah, blah, blah. But the point is, I didn't get a lot of expectations put on me. I, they, they provided me with meals. We had Christmas tree, and uh, we were pretty much independent. Well, I never communicated with my parents when I was in college, you know, except to call a nitty once every two weeks on a payphone, and I'd try to trick the operator so I didn't have to pay for it, and I'd they accept the charges on the other end. And that phone call lasted three minutes or so, right? I didn't even go home during the summer breaks. I stayed in Rosalie and painted houses. There was a, just a tremendous amount of independence, too. And my parents were just fine with that because that's just how they looked at it. But then I became a parent, and I raised my kids differently than that. I was very involved in their lives. We didn't have the, quite the same technology when my kids were in college, so we couldn't, we couldn't text back and forth all day. But, but, you know, we talked to each other much more regularly, and I was much more involved in their lives. And your parents are younger than me, and they are um, perhaps even more involved. So you all are, um, you put a lot of pressure on yourselves. You, you are very talented. You're less independent, um, but you're um, smart. <laughs> so that's just differences between baby boomers and Gen Xers, right? And we could go on and on about that all night long. It's really fascinating, you know? But then there's the issue of the life of the campus. It's much more, um, it's much more intentional about who we are as a college, um, less ambiguity at all about, about being a Christian college. And our students are much more um, aligned and, and uh, supportive of what we're about in our vision and mission. Um, so I love that about, um, about the campus that just wasn't quite the same back in the 70s. And if there was anything from that era that we could offer to the current era, which wouldn't be much, um, it would maybe be that, um, relax, okay, relax. You're gonna be fine. If you get a B, you'll still be fine. You will. I got a lot of Bs. And I got even some Cs. What? Yes. They're like this, okay? <laughs> one time I got one of these. If you want to leave or withdraw, you can. <laughs> And 
Baker and Joe in the United States. <laughs> I don't say that with pride, but I will say, one day when I was Deputy Attorney General, my chief of staff came into the office and he put this form from my face. He said, you just need to sign here. And I said, okay, what's this? He said, well, the Attorney General is going to leave the country next week and you're going to be the acting Attorney General because there always needs to be someone in the United States as, as the Attorney General. And as he walked out of the room, I thought, this knucklehead from the South Hills of Pittsburgh <laughs> who goofed around at Grove City College, who went to a not big name law school, is now the acting attorney general. <laughs> That's A, very frightening, and B, what a testament to God's grace that that could be occurred. And you know what? While that's a little bit of a wild story, everybody needs to relax and realize that you're going to do great. And, it, and, and um, I'm not telling you not to try hard. I'm just saying that um, this is an experience where you want to, it's more about learning and living than it is about just achieving. And if I wish every student could kind of appreciate that difference and, 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 and then make the most of it that way. You all get A's anyway because you're all so smart. But <laughs> I'm just saying, you can do that with your eyes closed. But, but whether you do it or not, you're going to be fine. And that's what you really want to appreciate. And so easy to forget. So easy. So easy to forget. Any more questions? Chris Merritt. <laughs> so I am curious to know if there are any, um, being someone, I lost my dad probably around the same time as Joe was going through his uh, transition uh, with cancer. Um, and I know that feeling of like losing someone, you're like, hey, I can talk about my dad all the time because I, I want to keep those memories alive. Right, um, and so and I know for people who don't know that, they're like, oh, I'm so sorry. And I'm like, no, it's fun. I love my father. Like, he's a great man. Um, and I'm always trying to think to myself, hey, am I making my dad proud? Um, and you have mentioned that uh, Joe has been a big reason on why you have decided to step in and be a president at, a uni at, a, at an institution. So I'm wondering, are there any moments or what have been some of your proudest moments as a president? And have you had any thoughts of saying, hey, I'm hoping that I'm making my son proud with mm -hmm. that decision or I guess a legacy that you would want to leave here? Oh, thank you, Chris. Uh, yeah, I do get a very deep sense of, of uh, fulfillment. And I know that Joe would be smiling broadly and uh, of his dad, you know, when um, I'm spending time with a student and I can just tell that it's beneficial to the student, you know, that's, that's, it's impactful. And it's so easy to be impactful, as you know. People like us who work with students, we can say some of the smallest things and just at a certain time, they go, oh, thank you so much. <laughs> I never forget my first year right here, I was having lunch with a student Hicks. And he was really wild up, just really wound tight. And I said, hey, you know, I wasn't that good of a student. And his response was, oh, you just changed my life. <laughs> I thought, wow, this is like pretty easy. That didn't take very much to change your life. That's pretty good. And, um, 
But I thought to myself, this is an interesting job uh, because you get to have those kind of meaningful, impactful you know, conversations every day if you want. That's why I like going to the cafeteria to have lunch and have people in my office because it's the best part of the job. There's a lot of parts of this job, <coughs> COVID, that I hate. <laughs> but that part is fun, right? And uh, uh, so yeah, I think he would be just get a big kick out of the fact that hey, you're up there. My daughters are like that. My daughters are just very um, happy that um, both Fred and I get to be in this environment. A little jealous that you know, oh, you're loving all those kids. Kind of loving us a little bit too, right? <laughs> no, 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 that's good. We're, we're gonna go around. Um, but uh, and then two of my daughters came here, so they can kind of picture the whole deal. And uh, yeah, that's that's I think about him um, in those situations. We 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 talked a lot about issues. He was very thoughtful and liked to get, dig in, and we've had a lot of great conversations about issues. Um, and sometimes when I'm thinking about a, a matter in a way that is taking it apart way we should try. I think he'd like that. He'd like the fact that we're kind of digging in a good way here on something, because that's uh, what he was all about, too. So yeah, that's a good question, Chris. It's, it's, uh, there's some times where you just kind of feel that, that, that um, uh, deeper um, uh, fulfillment from um, the pursuit of the calling. Any other questions before we end? Oh, yeah. This is just a more of a question as well. I'm on a golf team here at University College. Uh, I was curious. And I, well, <laughs> I was also curious um, that day at St. Andrews that you and Joe played. I was wondering if you remember what you shot that day. <laughs> what I shot that day? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I know it's a hard course. <laughs> no, but I don't actually remember the number, but it was a high number. Was, uh, he always was better than me. Um, that was kind of, there were some funny, funny moments in that round that you'll appreciate. Um, one of the questions that you have to decide when you're going to play St. Andrews is you're going to get a caddy or not. And I dumb, very dumbly decided, or dumbly, I uh, wrongly decided not to get a caddy. Which was really like, why play St. Andrews if not get someone to hey, carry your bag with me? <laughs> Tell you what you should be doing, right? Even if you can, can't do it. So the other, we play with another father son, just interesting. They're from Minnesota, I'll never forget that. And and they did get the cats. So Joe and I kept like listening to what those guys were saying to them, to try to cheat a little bit and get some advice on you know how to play the hole. And um, that was part of my problem was I was making all mistakes. Also, when you play Scottish golf courses, uh, gorse is evil, and your ball goes into it like a magnet. <laughs> and it's this, it's this yellow, flowery, prickly bush that sits everywhere. And if, if there's a fairway and there's gorse, your ball goes into the gorse. And, uh, so I was searching for my balls all the time in gorse. Um, I, I think I'm, I might have broken 100, but that's about as good as I can. Um, and it wasn't too much of a bad weather day. St. Andrews is actually an easy course. 
when the weather's good. That's why Tiger Woods one time, I think, shot like 20 under par or something like that. Um, but when the weather's bad, which it often is, and I played a lot of courses in Ireland where the weather was horrible, then it's easy to shoot like 140. <laughs> I, mean, I, I just played in Northern Ireland in May uh, at Keith Getty Golf Course up in the, um, uh, Port Stewart. And the winds were like 30 miles an hour. And uh, we just didn't keep score <laughs> but that was an experience that um, yeah, but probably the sweetest moments of life. Oh my goodness, what a great day that was! Just to be on there, you know, and the scene of the sea uh, and uh, the history of it all. It's just so so special. And he and I um, were drinking it all in. Just really loving the experience. Mm -hmm. Two thousand. Well, thank you so much for being here. This was, this was totally, totally.